right? We just want to lean into the Psalms being the oldest, perhaps the oldest, not perhaps, it is the oldest, most significant prayer book in the life and history of the church. You know, the Anglicans have their book of common prayer and lots of other streams and traditions in the church will have books of prayer that help shape and and give some collective voice to the prayers of God's people, but none are as old uh, uh, and as, as widely used as the Psalms. So, the whole Psalter, really all 150 Psalms, monastic communities often will pray through the entire Psalter in their gathered times of prayer in one week. So they'll go through all 150 Psalms in one week uh, together, those who follow particularly the rule of St. Benedict and others like that. Uh, So this has been traditionally like, it's like the OG, original kind of prayer book, you know, for, for the people of God, uh, in which we learn, we learn the, uh, the, not only the language of prayer, but also the posture and dispositions of prayer. They shape the, not just the words that we pray, but the way in which we pray. And that really is the heart behind this whole series, that we would, as we look to the Psalms, we would learn not just language, but we would learn the dispositions and the postures of prayer, that we would come to prayer differently, that as we, particularly as we prepare for our own prayer week, that the Psalms would help give shape to our own language, even our own longings and our own desires, that it would give shape to the whole range of our prayer. So let's look today. Today we're looking at Psalm 24. If you've got your Bibles or you can grab one of the green ones on a, on a seat near you, let's open up and let's take a look at Psalm 24. This is a Psalm of David. It says, "'The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For He founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place?' the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you ancient gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is He, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that You would add Your blessing to this Word. May it be for us Your Word to us, Your people, this day to nourish and feed and strengthen our souls. Lord, we pray that You would speak to us, that You would move us, that through this psalm, it would, it would reshape some of our own mindsets, some of our own dispositions, our own hearts, and that we would learn to pray more in line with Your will and Your kingdom, I pray. And so, Lord, we pray in the words of psalm, the psalmist in, in Psalm 19, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts might be pleasing to You, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. And we all said together, Amen, Amen. Right, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. I don't know about you, but I got a confession to make. You know, I'm a pastor and um, I'm a little bit embarrassed, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you can relate to this, maybe, maybe you understand a little bit, maybe I'm, I'm not totally alone in this, that even as a pastor, one who 
you know, leads people into the presence of God, one who is called to be a person of prayer, right? One who is, I got to admit, my prayers don't often sound a lot like that. When you think about how you pray, right, right? When, when you start out in prayer, does the starting point of your prayer, do you begin with, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it? All who live in it belong to Him. That's pretty bold, right? That's, that's, like, that's like a prophetic declaration. I mean, if we started like actually declaring that, proclaiming that over our city, over our nation, can you imagine? Like, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You, hey, over there at the Colombo, hey, you order in the coffee line, the, you belong to the Lord. You know, you may not know it yet, but hey, this is true. This is how we begin our prayers. Now, if you're anything like me, maybe, maybe your prayers begin much more with me and my circumstances and my world and what's right in front of me, right? But think about it. When we begin there, when we begin there, then what begins to loom large in our minds and in our hearts and in our spirits? The weight that we're under, the pressure that we're feeling, the, the, the intensity of the situation, the, the trouble that we're facing, those are the things that begin to dominate our thoughts and our hearts and our disposition, right? And our trust and our faith in God is diminished as a result. David says, no, no, start here. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And when we start there, with this reminder of who God actually is, in His greatness, in His sovereignty, in His largeness, in His otherness, then it reframes and reshapes, gives different perspective to the pressures we're under or the weight that we're feeling, doesn't it? It totally reorients those things. You know, once I had a, a mentor who totally, uh, like, he went on and on and on about the, like, he, he used like a seesaw, like there's a direct correlation in our lives, in our spiritual lives between worship and worry. And I think we see it playing out in this psalm, right? He says, when worry is high in your life, right? What happens to worship over here? It drops down. When worship is high in your life and the largeness and sovereignty and otherness of God is so central, then the worries of this life pale. It's like the classic words of that song, like, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and what? The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And if you don't believe me, if it's not just, this isn't just a good idea of coming from Psalm 24. This isn't an exception in the Scriptures. You read through the rest of the Psalter, they regularly start with God. The, the Psalms will regularly begin with a reminder of who God is in His greatness and in His sovereignty. And if that's not enough, take a look at how Jesus taught His disciples to pray. When they said, hey, hey teacher, teach us how to pray, He says, pray like this. The Lord's Prayer says, our Father who is in heaven hallowed be your name. Where does the Lord's Prayer begin? Begins with God. It starts there. That should, that should bring a strong word of challenge to all of us. That should shape the way that we pray, both in the words that we pray, but also in the disposition we bring to prayer, right? It, it totally should shape and the psalm continues from there. Basically, it, it breaks out in three main sections. You see in verse 1 and 2, we see the earth is the Lord and everything in it. 
the world and all who live in it, including you and I, that's some good news, hey, we, we belong to the Lord, for He founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. There's clear uh, allusion back to creation, right back to the very, very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 where it talked about out of the earth was formless and void, out of nothing God created. It talked about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, the waters being symbolic in a Hebrew mindset for chaos. And so, out of chaos and disorder, God brought this beautiful, ordered ordered creation. That's what God does. Out of chaos, God brings order. This is who He is. And so, right in the very beginning of the psalm, David's reminding us, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, right? The largeness and sovereignty of God, that He brings order out of chaos, that He's the creator, that He's the owner, and not just the owner because like He was like some conquering hero who overthrew some other political leader or government. No, no, no. He's the owner because He's the only one able to create this creation that we get to live in and experience. No one else No other thing, no other power, no other person has the ability. Only God can do this. And then then it begins to shift. In light of that God and His total otherness, David goes, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? It's this, I think, pretty normal, pretty, like, I love, like, it's just real, right? It's, It's honest. He's not putting on a face. He's not trying to, like, play nice in church when it comes to this, this, this text, right? You know, like, who, like, like, this is who God is, and, like, who can measure up? Who can stand in His presence? Who can come before Him? Who is worthy? No, like, like these are rhetorical questions with an implied answer of, no one, right? None of us are able to, and there's this beautiful humility which ways, you know, just weaves its way throughout all the Psalms, but it shows up right here in David's, David's, you know, like this, this, this humility, should shape our prayer, should shape our disposition, and, and, it's, and he's highlighting not just the Creator and Sustainer, who is God, but he's revealing God is also holy and righteous and just and, you know, pure and perfect, because he goes on to say in verse 5, uh, verse 4, who may stand in His holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. They will. And this is, this is the, they will receive blessing from God. They will receive vindication from God. Now, that's an odd word. You've got to just kind of pause for a minute there. This, this is a uh, that, that word in, in, in the original language, vindication, I often, you know, think about it in terms of like vengeance, you know, and exacting vengeance, you know, it kind of goes along those, you know, those lines. It's actually not that at all. This is actually, no, you are vindicated before God. This is what the psalmist is saying. Those who come with clean hands and a pure heart are vindicated before God, meaning made righteous, are made holy, those who come, this is what God does, it's imparted righteousness, it's not earned. And so, so in this, in this uh, psalm, we see David, who's got both the humility of saying, who can ascend, who is worthy? No one can approach this God who is so other and so holy and so pure and so righteous. But the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, the one who God has blessed, the one who God has made righteous, that's the one who may approach. 
And he blends this disposition, this posture in prayer of deep humility along with a deep confidence and assurance. Not in himself, not in his own merits and attributes, not in what he's achieved, but in the righteousness of God. And it's this strange disposition, this humble confidence is the best way of describing it. It's paradoxical almost. Sounds a lot like Jesus, right? You know, it's this paradoxical thing. And that should shape the way we pray. When we come in prayer to God, in light of Him being the creator and sustainer of all things, the owner of everything, the only one who is holy, pure, righteous, just, the one who establishes the standard of holiness, righteousness, justice in the earth. We can approach, we ought to approach in humility. Who can ascend the, the hill of our God? But we, but we must approach and we can come in confidence, we can come in assurance, not because of who we are, but because of who He is. You see it? And then he goes on in verse 7 uh, to say, or verse 6, sorry, such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. And I just, you know, reading through that going, oh, may, may that be true of me, you know, may that be true of us. May we be those who can approach God in that humble confidence. We'd be able to offer prayers like this. And then he goes, lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you ancient, he repeats, lift up, you, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Lift up. What does it mean to be lifted up? It literally is an image of like a lifting up like this. And in the Hebrew concept of a, of a lifting up your heads, it, was, it, it symbolized like having a disposition of hopeful anticipation. To li- have your head lifted in prayer is a posture of hope and anticipation of what? Of God showing up of God moving, of God working, right? This is, this is the posture, this is the disposition. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up. Why? Not because you're going to solve your problems, not because you're going to figure a way out, but because the King of glory, Yahweh, the God Almighty. And so we see the progression throughout this psalm where David's first painted this picture of God as the creator and sustainer and owner of all things. God who is the source, the authority of righteousness and justice. And then in the end here, God as the almighty King, the King of kings, the Lord of all lords. This in, in, this, in the repetition here, this, this King of glory is the, is the phrase, uh, like you might have seen it as the Lord of hosts. Or that, you know, is, is, is other translations might use that. That's the, that's the kind of Hebrew word underpinning it. And so this should shape our disposition to recognize when we come to God in prayer, we're coming to the creator, sustainer, and owner of all things, who cares deeply about righteousness and holiness, and who has the authority as the Almighty King and the ultimate rule and reign over all things. And so we approach in humble confidence. Should shape the way we pray. And I gotta be honest, that's not usually how I pray. You know, I don't usually begin, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
God, I recognize all of this belongs to you. Every, like it's in our stewardship prayer, right? Our generosity liturgy. Everything that I have is from you anyway, so I just offer it back to, you know, like, this is, this is not, I gotta admit, like, usually I'm like, Lord, you see this, right? You see, come on, God, fix it. Fix it now. <laughs> Why haven't you fixed it yet? You know, that's often how I end up praying, and I'm focused so much here and not enough out there. As I've been studying this text, I've, I've been reading a book I've been reading recently um, by Tyler Staten, a great book called Praying Like Fools, or pray, uh, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. Well, I almost got it mixed up, I'm not praying like, praying like monks, living like fools. It's a good title, eh? Uh, and, uh, and his thoughts have deeply shaped a lot of my thinking because he, in, in the end of his book, he points to the actual context of this psalm. Psalm 24 was written for a specific purpose, a specific occasion. Do you know what it is? It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. I want to read it to you. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Let's take a look at the context, the reason, the occasion that David uh, composed this. It's, it's more than a prayer. It's a song. It's a, it's a hymn of praise, really, that he composed. Here it is. Uh, basically, uh, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, I'll start reading in verse 14, where it's talking about David as King David wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. You familiar with this story? This is the story of David entering into his rule and reign. This is the story of David returning the Ark of the Covenant after it had been missing. This is, this is a pretty famous story. And if you read on down to the end of chapter 6, this is the fam- one of the famous lines from that story is where David, you know, they, they're basically, Michal uh, confronts him, the daughter of Saul, and it's like, how could you as a king be so, you know, like unashamed and, and unabashed and undignified in front of your people? And David's famous line is, I'll become even more undignified than this if it means honoring God. You know, this is, the, this is that famous passage. And basically, here's the context. Seven years before this scene in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David was anointed the king of Israel. Seven years before. His path to the throne was unconventional to say the least. So, Israel's first king was Saul, and Saul was so threatened by David that he spent a good chunk of his time hunting David from town to town trying to kill him. Finally, after Saul's death, David was anointed king. But then Ishbosheth, you all know Ishbosheth, right? That was one of Saul's sons, basically decided, no, I, I want to be king, and he moved himself into the palace, surrounded himself by a militia so that he could protect himself against, and basically set up his own little ruling kind of uh, place, and, 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 uh, and took the throne by force. So, David has been left living in a small town in the countryside, waiting for that imposter to move out of his royal bedroom so he can come in and establish his rule for seven years. Seven years! I mean, 
that's plenty of time for David to kind of daydream about his royal entrance into the city, you know, that's plenty of time for him to start planning out his political strategy, and that's what makes David's entrance just so shocking, and this psalm so confrontational, I think. This is his long-awaited royal parade, it's his coronation day. This is, in a sense, David's equivalent of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And for all those who witnessed it, it would have been absolutely jaw-dropping. They wouldn't have understood it. I mean, no doubt people would have heard him coming before they saw the parade, and uh, because there's an entire army marching and singing this song that David had composed especially for the occasion. The lyrics are straight out of Psalm 24 right? It's, what, it's, what, it's our teaching text for today, Psalm 24, where we see the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for He founded it on the seas and He established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, God of Jacob." lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. That sounds about right for a royal parade, doesn't it? Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Wait, 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 what? You can almost hear like the record scratching, kind of like, wait, wait, who is this King of glory? David isn't this King of glory? That would have been the anticipated refrain there. Is that a a typo, David? Do we need to get the scribes back, fix the scroll here? No, 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 no. David's a very experienced songwriter, remember? He's written a bunch of the Psalms. He he knows what he's doing, and this is the chorus, and so it's repeated in the Psalm. You see in verses 7 and 8, are repeated again as 9 and 10, lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So, the next time someone complains to you about repeating the chorus too many times in a latest worship song or whatever, you can just say, well, we're just following the biblical example, right? I mean, there you go, worship leaders, that one's for you. Um, (laughs) No, I'm just joking. So, King David basically enters to uh, a song of praise, but he's not the king, the song, uh, uh, he's not the king that the song is praising. The Lord Almighty is the king that the song is praising, right? He is the king of glory, He is the King of glory. And about this time, you can imagine that procession cresting the top of the hill and beginning to work its way down the hill into Jerusalem. And the onlooking crowd all around, they would have expected to see this long procession, this long march of soldiers and magicians, and and the king carried on the, what would have been like the ancient equivalent of like a parade float, you know, sitting on his throne, decorated in royal robes and wearing a heavy crown on his head. That's likely how Saul would have come in when Saul was inaugurating his uh, rule and reign as king. And that's what they were waiting to see. That's what they were there for. But what did they actually see? What did they actually see? Was David, their new king, at the front of the parade, wearing a linen ephod and he's dancing, something that Jewish men didn't usually do in public, on display type settings like this. Wearing a linen ephod, that's the outfit that David chose to wear for this special day, after seven years of thinking this through. A linen ephod? You know, not, not, not the expected royal robe, not the expected royal crown. I mean, 
an ephod was a priestly garment, not a royal one, not an aristocratic one. It, it wasn't even the dignified outer robe that a priest would wear either. It was the undergarment of a priest. Essentially, David's wearing someone else's undies. He's dancing in front of the parade, right? And he's out in front and he's undignified and he's dancing down the... He's like, because he wasn't a priest, so he wouldn't have had... You get it, right? Uh, essentially, the symbolism is that David's saying, I'm not a king who is coming to sit on the throne. I'm a priest coming to lead you into the presence of God. But I'm the least of all priests. See, I'm unqualified to wear the robes and the tassels and all the actual robes, so I'm just doing uh, an amended version, right? And, and he says, here comes this new king. David is out the front of the procession singing a song of praise to God and he's dancing in a priest's underwear. It's foolish, right? But it's that holy kind of foolishness that the Lord smiles upon, that the Lord looks down with favor, that the Lord's heart is drawn towards. And then there's this float at the back of the parade where instead of housing a throne for David to sit on, it holds the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this sacred wooden box carried by the Israelites all the way through the desert during the Exodus, and it was symbolized God's presence with them. It was literally for them the intersection between heaven and earth coming together. And when God's people took the promised land, the Ark led the procession through those parted waters of the Jordan River. But when things got comfortable, King Saul left the ark in a foreign field. And if we're honest, isn't that what tends to happen with God? We leave Him behind when we find ourselves quite comfortable. But David went and hunted down the ark and he placed it on the throne. He placed it in the place of honor. And God, the true king in the true seat of honor, is led into by this procession with David as a dancing priest celebrating God's return to his people. That's the procession. That's the symbolism. That's what's going on in all of this. You know, uh, and, and every jaw you can imagine is just on the ground. They're like, we didn't expect this. This is not at all what we were looking for. While David is making his way down the main street, and when he gets into the town square, right in the center of the city, he's arranged for a tent at the city center, right outside the palace doors, a tent in the form of Moses' tent of meeting, where Israel's great deliverer, Moses, spoke face to face with God as one speaks to a friend, is the way it's described in the Exodus story. David puts the ark back in the tent and calls it a tabernacle. A tabernacle. Now, don't picture some ornate, dazzling, impressive kind of a, a, a deal here. This isn't, you know, this isn't the temple. It's not even something kind of alternative and edgy. This isn't like even glamping vibes. You know, this is literally a basic tent that he set up. It's, it's a makeshift, temporary booth or shelter. It would have been relatively unimpressive. Something, basically, just a tent. And David's big idea, the culmination of seven years waiting in a small country town, was, hey, how about we put up a tent? Let's put up a tent. Where a tent, not just any tent though, while it may look unimpressive on the outside, this tent was very impressive because it was a place where anyone and everyone can come to worship and to pray 
nothing fancy, just a common space right in the center of the city for prayer. This is what David's setting up. This is what he's announcing as he's coming into town, singing at the top of his lungs. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Lift up your heads, you ancient gates. Lift up. You, you, oh, this, is what he's, this is what he's talking about. This is what it's all about. And, and the truth is, you know, when a new prime minister is elected, uh, they, they often have the first order of business to tackle immediately. And it's something that uh, promised to voters, you know, it's usually a pet project for them chosen to define their legacy. Well, David's very first act uh, on his very first day as Israel's king was to reconstruct Moses' tent of meeting in the city center. Think about that. At first, his royal advisors, you know, they, they might have thought the tent was just a symbol, a way to remember the Exodus, and so they're, they're probably thinking, yeah, sure, this is a good idea. Let's honor and celebrate the past, the ways in which God's shown up for us in the past. That's good. I'm all for that. You know, but, but for David, this was far more than symbol. It was a statement of value and it was a threat to the status quo. See, after his entrance, David went into the palace and he gathered his advisors around and laid out his plan. Here's his plan. David says, let's hire 288 worship leaders and prophets and elders to pray and worship in that tent 24 hours a day. Well, we don't know for sure. We, you know, like we can't 100% guarantee that it was a 24-hour a day, but, but there's good reason to believe that it was likely it could have possibly been. So think about it, you know, we're, we're coming up on our, tw- our first our prayer week, 24-7 prayer week. This is like the original prayer room, the tabernacle in the center of Jerusalem. This is like the original prayer room and it dates back to oh, 930-odd BC. It goes a long way back, you know what I mean? Originally, he was a king leading a military during an era of tribal warfare and he's just emptied out the national savings account in order to, for prayer to employ all these people, to, to run this... I mean, can you imagine the meeting that went on with those advisors sitting around in the palace where he laid out that kind of a strategic plan? I mean, they would have been going, um, you know, Dave, uh, all for prayer, but we're actually going to need to beef up our defenses against the armies that are literally surrounding us. If you read in the text, it says it just like that. It says, who are in the hills. They're in the hills right now, is what the advisors say. Uh, you know, they're, they're literally surrounding. Instead, you just want to spend all this on a prayer tent? And David's like, yep, it's exactly right. And they did. And then for 33 years, 33 years of David's reign as Israel's king, worship and prayer took place 24 hours a day. David put prayer back at the very center of God's people. And he invited everyone, men and women, slave and free, Israelite and pagan, everyone, and those 33 years of David's kingship were the only time before the resurrection that there were not restrictions on the access to God's presence. One biblical scholar says, it's like David's tabernacle was a New Testament reality in an Old Testament world. That's the scandal of this prayer tent. And as I, as I mentioned at the, uh, a little earlier on, you know, I've been reading Tyler Staten's book, you know, praying like monks, living like fools, and he has this line towards the end of his book, this, this paragraph towards the end of his book, this dream that he picked, he says, I have this dream for the church. He says, prayer at the center of God's people. I dream about a freestanding space right in the heart of our city where anyone and everyone can come to pray, a space consecrated by the prayers of so many who have saturated it in praise, hope, and longing, a space that inadvertently gives birth to a wave of mission 
that looks something like the kingdom of God set loose on a city. That's what I dream of for the church. And I don't know, but my, I just found my heart swelling as I read that because my experience of, you know, I've been in prayer rooms, you know, 24-7 prayer rooms, 24-hour day prayer rooms in different parts of the world over a number of years now. And every time I walk into them, while, they, while it seems like, you know, from the outside, a pretty ordinary, you know, makeshift, temporary, nothing special or fancy about this place, the minute you walk in, there's something about that sustained continual, prayer-soaked, prayer-saturated space. Some of you have experienced that when you've come in here in past years for prayer week and you walk in and there's something that shifts the minute you cross through the door, you notice a difference in the atmosphere, in the spiritual atmosphere. There's something that shifts and in one of those spaces, I love the language there of a space consecrated by the prayers of so many who have saturated it in praise and in hope and in longing. And that's been true of my experience in prayer rooms. But, but the truth is, the modern church's best-kept secret is that we believe more in productivity than we do in prayer, don't we? We believe in having solid programs and, you know, teaching in the Sunday worship gathering that's above average and yet another, you know, let's, let's write some new worship songs and put out a worship album maybe. That's success for a church, right? That's, that's how we often think about it. But the truth is that the church's underground atheism in our time is that we will busy ourselves with almost anything except prayer. We're unwilling to prioritize it. Real talk for a second. How many of you this week, when you heard about prayer week, either you got the email or you heard us talk about it last Sunday and went, oh, prayer week, yeah, okay, cool. Go check it out, click the link, go have a look at some of the slots available and not commit, close the tab, move on. We're so much willing to commit to other things and not prioritize prayer in our lives. And if anything this morning, I wonder if the Spirit of God might just say, hey, let's put prayer back at the center of our lives. Let's go this week, let's click on, go look at the slots and just pick one. Who cares what's happening any, any time in the rest of that week? We're going to prioritize and put that prayer first. We're going to make it work. Other things will get shifted around that priority. That's more of what I see David doing, right? You see, David's first, you know, his jaw-dropping first move was essentially to put prayer back at the center for all of God's people. And that was either the most admirable or the most ridiculous move that a king could make, depending on whether or not you lean more towards the, the poetic or the pragmatic, you know. But David's unconventional reign as king was the political high point for all of Israel, Israelite history. No matter how you measure it, it was, it was peace and safety in the city, whether it was prosperity in the economy, whether it was care for the poor, whether it was a divided kingdom coming together and being unified, it didn't matter. It was during David's rule. That was the high point in all of Israel history, across all of those things. David's priorities looked like a political disaster on paper, but he built his life radically on prayer and God took care of everything else. As David Fritsch writes, the presence of God was David's political strategy. The presence of God and the pattern that emerges from David's tabernacle, placing the presence of God. Remember the Ark of the Covenant being placed in the tabernacle is this, prioritize presence in the church and you get kingdom in the city. 
Prioritize presence in the church and you'll get God's kingdom being outworked all around. But the tragedy in all of this is that after David, the next generation of political advisors, they went back to board meetings, they went back to political strategies and military strategies and, and then God had to raise up another messenger. And you can read about that in Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12, where Amos cries out saying, talking about Israel's restoration, this is a long time after David, where he says, in that day I will restore David's fallen shelter, I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and we will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord. Who will do these things? That's Amos 9, 11 and 12, referencing the exact same thing, right? So even after, even after Jesus reenacted David, you could almost say, David's dramatic entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus in a sense kind of reenacted it, but he was the true king of glory, right? Uh, having his own triumphal entry, the, the very priests who witnessed all of that the ones who could recite the facts of David's tabernacle, even from memory, they picked up the coins and they put them back in the cash registers. The doves, they put them back in their cages and they tidied up the mess around the temple area and went back to life as usual, right? But the glory on display in Amos's vision and prophecy is that actually God will do this. And the early church brought it off the page and into the real world and it came alive in secret meetings held in underground Roman basements, where communities were formed that put prayer at the center for God's people and the kingdom spilled into the city in such a profound way that the world has never recovered. And there have been movements of God sparking out of this. Maybe you're familiar with the story of the Moravian movement coming out at Count Zinzendorf and in Hernhut and, 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 and 24-7 prayer over ye many years that sparked a missionary revolution across the world. And, and I just find myself echoing the prayers, you know, Tyler in the end of his book, he's, he just echoes his prayer saying, oh Lord, raise up David's tabernacle here in our days, in our city, raise up the tabernacle of David, do it here do it through us. And imagine what might be if we as God's people, as a church, were to truly become that house of prayer for all the nations that Jesus talked about, that we might become a point of intersection where heaven actually does meet earth. Because let's be real honest, none of us are all that interested in spending the rest of our lives cloistered off in some socially irrelevant, spiritually dry weekly gatherings, right? So what's the alternative? I gotta think the radical reprioritization of prayer in our lives, it's gotta be up there on the list at least. It's gotta be a pretty high point. And if the cost is foolishness and looking undignified, rolling out here at 3 a.m. to come and pray for an hour in a prayer room, then count me in. If the cost is sacrifice, I'm not gonna sleep as much because I'm going to do two hours, I'm going to do 3 a.m. and through 3 to 5 a.m., you know, then count me in. If the cost is faith, then count me in. If the cost is perseverance, then count me in. Back to Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I mean, it paints a picture of what this might actually begin to look like, that prayers like that might actually become a little more natural and less foreign you know what I mean? Because we'll be 
much more reoriented. We'd be, we'll be framed differently. We'll be living out of a perspective and seeing the reality of God's coming. See, a yes to this kind of kingdom vision looks less like gritting our teeth and more like a king dancing in a priest's underwear. It le- looks less like putting our nose to the grindsta- grindstone and more like Jesus smiling ear to ear on the back of a donkey or maybe half his weight. It looks less like intensity and a lot more like joy. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want to be part of, seeing the things of God actually happening, breaking out in and around our lives, that that would be true of us and of our church. So we see David leading this procession, the earth of the Lord's, everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For He founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lift, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is He, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. And so as we close our time in worship together, we want to respond. And we respond by coming around the Lord's table and we receive communion together. And in our response this morning, I thought, let's take some time to practice that humility we see in David in Psalm 24, where we, where we recognize God, give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. May we be that generation who truly seek your face and seek you first, not as a last resort, but actually seek you first and pursue that. May that be true of us. Make that true of us. Receive that imparted righteousness, paid for by the blood, the body and blood of Christ on the cross for our sins. Receive that anew. Take a moment in confession, receive communion as fresh grace for today, and maybe have a covenantal moment with the Lord where just between you and God, you say in your own heart and in your own spirit and in your own way, a moment of commitment of saying, Lord, I'm placing you at the center of my life. Carve out in my heart, in my spirit, carve out in our church a place of prayer, a tabernacle where your presence dwells that we might be people who know that, who experience that, and who are led more by your presence than we are by any other pragmatic (laughs) concerns. May that be the center point for our lives as we head into, you know, the beginning of a year, it's always good to have a centering moment like that of of coming again. It's actually very Wesleyan. You know, Wesley wrote a prayer called Wesley's Covenant Prayer. You can go search that one for yourself. That's a tough one to pray. We've often prayed it here. And it's designed to be prayed around the new year, at the start of a new year. And uh, so I'll leave that for you to look at later.